crazy cat shirt. Are you a cat lover? Is that I have to ask you, Joey of. the cat? What is where's that come from? Yeah, Joey the cat is a nickname that was given to me in college by a friend, and the metaphor is being always on the prowl, keeping your claws sharp, and then just attacking everything uh, to your best ability. So, kind of that predatory nature. But I was raised with cats, not with dogs, and uh, the nickname stuck when I had to give a nickname in the skee-ball league that I play in. All right, gotcha. Well, that's a very colorful uh, cat shirt. I wish you guys could see it. Um, I'm sitting here with Joey Mucha, who I only came to know, I'd say, like the past month, month and a half, because of correspondence with his uh, business. But um, before we get into that, I found it interesting that you made, I guess, would we call it a career change or more career decision in the past couple weeks? Yeah, I quit my full-time job to focus on my what was a side business to emphasize my passion, which was my skee-ball business. So now I'm running an arcade amusement business full-time instead of just running it on the side. So what were you doing two weeks ago? Two weeks ago, I was doing product marketing at a technology startup in the advertising space. How did you get into that? When I was in college, I was reading the blogs and, you know, it was around when Twitter was just popping up and a lot of these technology startups were coming back. You know, we had the dot-com boom in the early 2000s. I wasn't really in the workforce then, but I saw it kind of through the stock market. And then I, when I got closer to graduation and I needed to start looking for jobs, I was working for Microsoft at the time as a campus marketing rep. And so I kind of had my hands and I did an internship in uh, at Toyota in their corporate headquarters. And so I kind of had my hands in corporate culture, but then I saw these startups down in San Francisco and, and these other technology hotbeds. And I said, that's really cool. And so I connected with one of them and they ended up offering me a job to be an online marketing manager since I was already doing marketing on campus and with Toyota. And then um, offered me a job to work for them in San Francisco, having never been to San Francisco before. Coming, okay. from, coming from Portland, Oregon, and then college in Eugene at University of Oregon. So how long were you with this job? The first job, the job that moved mm-hmm. me to San Francisco, I was there for about four years. Three years into it, we got acquired by a bigger company. Um, and the three years that I was there at the company was what I would consider kind of continuing education because working for a startup, whether it's really successful or really unsuccessful, is a learning experience in and of itself because every single sort of hat that you wear, every single job function that you take on or your ambition to do things inside of work, outside of work that sort of shape who you are and what your career path looks like. And so I was doing marketing, I was doing community support, customer uh, relations, business development, sales. It was cold calling at one point. I was just kind of doing everything. And so that shaped me into then um, sort of being very entrepreneurial minded and set that foundation. It wasn't frowned upon for me to be having a side business mm-hmm. or running poker tournaments or doing events and, and sort of diversifying my skill set because eventually it's branding and it adds back to the, the business that you're working on because it's really the people that you work with and the sort of your personal brand that represents what you want to do. When you work in the tech space, I think there's the assumption, you know, you, you can make decent money. Is that, this can that be said to a startup? I mean, is it? Yeah, yeah. So startups, especially when the economy is going well and venture funding is uh, readily available, they pay competitive wages. And you might 
need to work at a smaller level, but you can quickly work your way up. I actually experienced some pretty sort of uh, exponential salary adjustments when I was in my, my position because I made myself really valuable to my team. I made myself valuable to my community and, and the customer base that I was working with. And then somebody else tried to hire me, and then I went back to my boss, and I said, you know, I got offered this much money from this other company, and the next day they matched that salary and then gave oh, me wow. a bump. And so typically people are sort of under this assumption that you're going to get a 5% raise for the rest of your life, and the, or, you know, if you're doing well. And that's, that's just not the case, especially in startups and technology where there's such high demand mm-hmm. that you get into positions where, you know, if you switch around or you say or you explore other opportunities, you can really determine the value. And so, yeah, I came in making not livable wages. You know, I can barely pay rent. And then I kept grinding away and and, and focusing on um, the tasks at hand and, and sort of where I want what I wanted to do and was doing stuff that was really fun on the side. So I had a, a well-rounded work-life balance. And then um, and then the salary kind of caught up with me. So what became, I guess, the breaking point when you decided you were going to walk away from that world and full-time go into your arcade business? Yeah, so um, there's a blog post I read the other day that said, it takes three years to build something to see whether or not it's the right thing. And, and so I, I literally did my first skee-ball rental just over three years ago, which is really coincidental. Um, and I did it for a company that I actually interviewed for and I didn't get the job. And so I was thinking about this earlier today. There's this sort of um, undertone in my career path that where I interviewed for jobs and I didn't get the jobs. And then I went and did that job on the side and then sort of proved to myself that I was capable of that job. So I interviewed an event company. They turned me down so I didn't have enough event planning experience. Now I've planned 50, 60 events mm-hmm. and made a fair amount of money on the side planning events interviewed at Airbnb, didn't get the job, became an Airbnb super host and was making money renting out my apartment and showing people around San Francisco. And then Airbnb was my first client. They rented my first ever ski ball machine from me. And so that's funny. That was the foundation. And then it just started to grow step by step. And it wasn't until recently that I said, all right, if I want to turn this into overdrive, if I want to take this to the next level, then I need to put all of the time and energy that I'm focusing on my full-time job into this side project. Because if I don't analyze and say, if I put all my energy into this, what could it possibly be and mm-hmm. take that leap? Then I don't know what it's capable of, what the potential is. And so there were some partnerships that came about. So basically it's it, it came down to sales. I secured a couple of really big partnerships. I'm doing off-the-grid Fort Mason Fridays. So I'm going to be the primary amusements vendor for Fort Mason's um, version of Off the Grid, which has seven to 10,000 people every Friday night coming through. Um, that requires setup at 1 p.m. on a Friday. That requires me being there all Friday night. It would be impossible to do that with a mm-hmm. proper full-time job. So when I got that deal, I said, well, I can either turn this deal down and keep my job and keep my cushy salary, or I can say, I'm not going to, there's going to be a gap in between me, um, sort of my lifestyle and my salary and then my side business, which will become my full-time business and its respective salary. And then mapping those together. And I just crunched some basic numbers and said, 
if I can have these be successful, I'll have this baseline amount of revenue. If I can take my time that I'm spending on my current job and put that into expanding efforts to Los Angeles and other events and, and getting in touch with people, then I can basically say, all right, it's time to peel the metaphorical Band-Aid off and go for it. And that was what most recently happened. And so I've got some big deals, some partnerships, uh, the support of my family and my friends who say, you know, that you, we knew you were going to do this. I even interviewed for a job a while back and they said, I know you're not going to stay at this company that more than a year because you're an entrepreneur and you're going to go start your own thing you know, once we're successful here. And I'm like, whoa, that was really sort of interesting and inspiring to hear in mm-hmm. an interview, especially from the CEO who's interviewing me at a job that I'm trying to get. But uh, that was also these kind of moments of awakening, if you will, that just basically said, you're passionate about what you're doing. It's, it's revenue generating. You have the support of uh, your peers and your family. And... Um, you know deep down that if you don't put your time and energy into it, then it's not going to be as big as you want it to be. Well, I think the passion's a really important part because there's so many people that have don't have passion in what they do. Would you say, did you have passion for your previous work? Or if you did, how different was um, it than skee-ball? Yeah, I think the, the passion in my previous work was interacting with customers so that human interaction was a really big component for me. And so going to client meetings and enabling people to do things they couldn't do before by training them how to use certain types of software and um, helping them and interacting with them and building those relationships was something I was really passionate about. I was able to do that in a lot of the roles that I had. And then um, building technology is very inspiring. And I am passionate about technology and being able to work with a group of engineers that that you know, come up with this vision and, and, and then develop it and, and deploy it. And then the sales team and the marketing teams taking it to market is like that whole sort of ecosystem of a business is really interesting to me. And, and I am passionate about that. And that did um, sort of keep me fired up and ready to go and constantly building stuff. Because at the end of the day, we're building stuff, whether it's digital software or physical experiences like skee-ball. Gotcha. So it doesn't sound like it's so much a variance of passion. Then what, I guess, what were you more inclined to get out of branching off on your own and having your own business? Um, I guess I'm, yeah, I'm kind of a passionate person. So it's, it's, uh, it's the ability to grow it to more and more people. Like you can't, like people always talk about businesses that don't scale and, and Airbnb was famous for saying, we're going to do something in our business that actually will not scale. And we're going to see how that affects our community. And what that did is it taught them that it is the people that you're working with, the people, the customers that can can help you scale if you do things that maybe aren't scalable in the beginning. But um, with my business, it's I want to get more and more skee ball experiences out there, and I want to get more and more people playing skee ball, and I want to teach people how to play skee ball, and then just sort of show them the way that this this you can be good at this because a lot of people say. Oh, skee ball! Nobody can be good at that. It's rigged. It, it doesn't work. You know, there's no one can ever make that fifty pocket, that hundred pocket consistently. And and sort of that, those doubters mm-hmm. are kind of what keep me fired up. It's like, well, I've won two national championships and I've practiced this game and I actually have put in the five thousand hours of play, right? So it, it's silly, but it, a lot of the fundamentals you learn as a kid, like practice 
and hard work and all these things, they, they translate. And it's just, it's just a matter of finding out what your avenue for those sort of ideas and functions are. So skee-ball, it's so many questions. It's the why, the how, I mean, how did you get into skee-ball? The first place that skee-ball came into my life was Chuck E. Cheese. Of course. It's my 11th birthday party. I'm there with my friends and my family and my dad, and we're over in the arcade, and he says, you need to be playing this game, not the shoot 'em up you know, overly engineered video games and, and sort of just like one-on-one staring at a screen. You should be doing something where you have some sort of physical interaction in this game. Skee-ball, which traverses generations, my dad played it, his grandfather's, you know, his, his dad played it, and it's been around since the early 1900s. And so when I grabbed the wooden ball and Chuck E. Cheese and rolled up the ramp and you have that sort of what I do down here affects what the ball does and then I get tickets, the whole redemption arcade aspect. That's when it entered my life. Fast forward to five years ago and it re-entered my life. I was playing in a co-ed softball team and one of the teammates said, hey, there's a competitive skee-ball league. You know, we're putting together a team. You should join. I said, that sounds really interesting. And so I missed the first season, but then I got on board on the second season, and I fell in love. I put a team of friends together. We went down there and played skee-ball every Wednesday night, and we got statistics, and we you know, made new friends, and, and then eventually um, had league championships, and all of this sort of culminated to what then became a national championship. And the game is just as you remember it, you know, the pockets in the corners and the down the line in the concentric circles and rolling the wooden balls up the ramp and hearing the sound effects and getting your high scores. Um, but in this case, we're not playing for prizes. We're playing for pride and glory and statistics and, and sort of trophies at the end of the season or skeezins, they call them. <laughs> so are those these awards that I'm looking at over here? Yeah, there's the two big ones at the top are the national championship trophies and then the mugs and the chalices are the interleague or, or within the San Francisco League tournament championships. And then the individual smaller ones are the sort of high scoring champion and various sort of auxiliary. So are there a lot of cities throughout the U.S. that are getting into this? I play in a league called Brewski Ball. And Brewski Ball has five cities. And then there's other leagues, uh, sort of other social sports leagues that have ski ball as one of the components of, the, of their league that are probably in another 10, 15 cities um, distributed. Like, oh, um, just to name a few, there's, there's some in here in San Francisco, Sacramento, Austin, Texas, Dallas, Texas. Um, Boston, Chicago, D.C., New York is, is big. They've got a couple different skee-ball leagues in New York, Atlanta, just to name a few. So, And then there's an, 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 there's this arcade operator in Ohio that's got a bunch of different bars with, with skee-ball, and so he runs his own little mini league there. And so, yeah, yeah. And some of my travels around, I'm in different bars, I'll always stumble upon, there's the skee-ball you know, machine in the corner, mm-hmm. and then you end up, of course, playing it. But it, it seems like it's been coming back. At least I've been noticing it now, more in adult uh, spaces. But how many uh, ski ball machines do you own at this moment? So I have 13 classic ski ball machines, the ones with the wooden balls and the mesh nets and the old school sound effects that you'll recognize. They're most iconic. 
Uh, and then I have one new school skee-ball machine as well that has like a custom LCD screen and a digital printer so you can have prize levels. Oh, and, awesome. And so that's made by a different manufacturer than skee-ball. So I've got 14 total skee-ball games. And I imagine that this wasn't like, oh, you decided to start your arcade business and then overnight you bought all 13 at the same time. Right. It's been a three-year process of finding machines on Craigslist and eBay and then having them shipped out. The first one was a 13-footer. Um, the games that I play on competitively and are more popular in you know, homes and bars are the 10-foot versions. And so Chuck E. Cheese and Dave and & Buster's and the, the boardwalks, they have the longer versions because they're harder. You have to roll the ball farther. There's more variance. But the game that I play on is the 10-footer. And I bought my first one. It was a 13-footer, put it in my Bernal Heights apartment, uh, and it took over the entire apartment. The entire apartment was a skee-ball machine, basically. I had to step over it. Were you on the it. second floor? Thankfully, and a lot of this is serendipity and just luck and opportunity, but I was on the first floor with an apartment that had a door that went right out to the sidewalk. No one above me, no one below oh, nice. me. There's a garage next to me and a restaurant to the other side. So I was in this very unique space. I just imagine the neighbor wondering what that rolling sound is all day, all night long. Yeah. Now, these machines are pretty pricey. Can they be? Or do you buy them used that need a little fixing up? How do you approach it? Yeah, from a capital acquisition perspective, I get my arcade games in a variety of conditions. So sometimes I'll find a really mint machine that's a little bit more expensive, like Two or three grand is the upper limit of what mm-hmm. I paid for for a skee-ball machine. But then I found, I bought three machines for $900 in Clovis, California. From fun, The games were in Funland, and then they were in someone's backyard. They had hornet's nests in the computers. They were all warped and kind of worn down, which adds to the aesthetic, but affects the gameplay. And so then I had to go through a restoration process. And so anywhere from three hundred dollars to $3,000 um, are the sort of price points for acquiring my machines. Now, do you restore them on your own? Yeah, so I will fix them up myself. I'll replace the scoring switches. I'll sort of repaint, sand, and, and make sure that it looks sort of where it was before. And then, you know, Skee-Ball Inc. is still around, so I can get replacement parts. I can get new displays. The only things that are really hard to to fix with the computers because they're custom circuitry. They have custom programmable chips in there that only Skee-Ball Inc. has the licensing to and, and sort of data for. And so um, the restoration is, is it's moderate to advanced, but it's not impossible. For have me. you ever run into a problem where you've had to, I guess, dish out a lot of money or something, you know, one of these deals? I mean, in the first machine, I made a lot of mistakes. It was kind of like my starter kit if you will i took a bunch of stuff apart broke some stuff (laughs) drilled some stuff out that i shouldn't have and then um over time learned what uh what needed to happen for the games to work the most expensive part is the computer if you get one of those new it's about a thousand dollars which you can buy a a different machine for in Mm -hmm. working condition so um the worst case scenarios are when sort of a fuse or, or one of the mechanical parts breaks in the middle of an event or a rental. And so I have to figure out how can I fix this? You know, what's the problem? And I have to troubleshoot it. And so now, you know, in the beginning, 
that kept me up at night. And I was really nervous, really terrified of things breaking. Um, I've kind of come to peace with, with the things that will break and have a strong enough understanding of what the problems are and how they arise and, and how I can troubleshoot and fix. And, and so um, it no longer stresses me out. Because you're, you're a one-man band at this moment, right? Is it, yeah, is it it's just you? me in San Francisco, and then I have a general manager in, in L.A. who's managing those rentals. So when you start doing your Fort uh, Mason event, will you also be on site there to, I guess, fix anything that goes wrong? Do you kind of jump into that mode? Yeah, so I'm the on-site operator and repairman. Um, and thankfully with Ski Ball, I can pretty much figure everything out. Um, with a couple of basic tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, if a fuse blows or a scoring switch breaks, you know, I can get in there and, and, and swap them out pretty quickly and easily. And so that doesn't concern me. Um, one other component of the Fort Mason Center is that I'm adding in other games. The basketball pop a shot sort of oh, okay. hoops game. I've got a bubble hockey machine behind us, nice. which I run a competitive bubble hockey league. And then Randomly, I'm, uh, uh, or semi-randomly, people have asked for it, I'm, I've got a whack-a-mole machine. So kind of along the lines of that, nostalgic, really interactive, you've got some sort of physical component, arcade games. That's, that's pretty cool. So is that something you're going to get in time for the Fort Mason, or is that just something you're looking into down the, down the line? Oh, I've, uh, I've got the bubble hockey here, I've got the skee-ball. But the whack-a-mole. The whack-a-mole and the basketball are, are at um, the the distributor over oh, in Hayward right now. So I'm picking them up tomorrow, getting my, you know, 16 foot box truck going over and getting them. Now, do then... you operate out of your home or do you have like a storage unit or a space where you keep these? Yeah. Another part of my business that's been really sort of fortunate and lend itself to me being sort of flexible with my full-time job at the time is that I've got a storage unit that's accessible 24 hours a day in Bayview. It's a shipping container that I can pull up to at any time. Just pull the machines in and out. I've got an event space in Union Square where I have two machines so I can throw parties on demand there. And then I have my apartment. One of the reasons I picked this apartment is I'm on the first floor. I'm near an entry. I'm on a convenient intersection. I'm not down an alleyway. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's concrete, so it's easy to roll the machines in and out, which I've done 50 plus times and um, I don't have a neighbor on one side so it doesn't really bother people that I'm playing skee ball at 10 o'clock at night on a Friday night because I have friends over and we're just playing skee ball and so um, this is a live work loft so technically I I do live and work here um, which is nice because then I can write off some of my fees associated Mm -hmm. with that so there are some benefits that and I I, you know I'm fortunate that this is the spot that I got that it is accessible I do have a really convenient storage unit and uh yeah so it seems to be working out nicely I mean what what would be some things you might advise somebody who's listening who's thinking about going into business on their own that might just assume like okay I just have to buy some stuff and get some customers what are some other things that people aren't quite aware of yeah, uh, it, it really depends on your product, but it's the community around you. Because when I told people that I quit my job and I started my skee-ball business full-time, um, it was the most liked and commented on posts I've ever put on Facebook. 375 people liked it, 65 comments or something like that. And they were saying, 
oh, I, I totally knew you were going to do this, or finally you took the leap, or um, it's been great to watch you and follow you along this journey, and just sort of the support of my peers. And so when you're thinking about starting these businesses, talk to your friends about them, talk to your boss, talk to your um to your potential customers, explain you know what your idea is, what your vision is, how you sort of see it going. Like, if you can talk about it in the now and in the future, then you're in it for the long haul, and you're actually interested in seeing this through. Not just I'm going to buy some ski ball machines and make some money because it's cool. No, I I can call up 25 people right now and get them to come over to do a ski ball tournament because they love what I'm doing. I can connect with people in the community and. Johnny Fun Cheap and my buddy who runs a scavenger hunt company that have been sort of both peers and mentors and given me feedback. Oh, I'm thinking about throwing a skee-ball tournament that's going to be a fundraiser for this company or this nonprofit. And I need, you know, I need to connect with someone who's an event planner so I can, you know, all those things. You got to start talking to people. And so my business was built based on me interacting with people, talking to Airbnb about throwing a skee-ball party for their second anniversary, you know, connecting and getting skee-ball machines in the event space we have down downtown mm-hmm. that is a collaboration effort with my buddy who runs a scavenger hunt company. So it's it's finding those complementary angles and saying this is how we can do it. Like the whole concept of a pop-up shop is because one business is willing to take the risk to let another business come into their space. And so if you're thinking about your business, you need to say, how can I create my network so that people will go to bat for me, so that people will talk about my product? I've got someone who runs a retail shop in the Lower Haight who has a skee-ball machine in his shop, and he's telling people about me nonstop because he thinks it's cool. And so he's actually pitching my product to somebody else um, as a second-degree connection without me even having to make that sale. What would you say though? I'm trying to imagine somebody who lives in a small town, mm-hmm. not the you know doesn't have the community or the sure. city like you have, and maybe their family and friends are saying, "No, don't do this. Stick stick with your steady paycheck." You know what? What could you possibly even imagine saying to those those people? Well, it depends on the product, but it's find out where your customer base is and communicate with them. If it's online on an Etsy shop, if it's in a community forum, if it's if it's other people that have um, done this in a different city, even just reach out to them and mm-hmm. say, okay, you, you want to sell custom branded rakes to farmers in Des Moines, Iowa. Well, has somebody else done that? Maybe. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do it if they have, but if they have, ask them what they did to be successful in their market or go find out someone else is doing custom branded X in a different space and say, you know, I'm really thinking about doing this for a different product. What you know, what what are some of your tips? And then you'll start to build up this network of people that aren't the haters, that aren't the gonna stomp you down, that say don't don't do this idea because if you want to do it, people want to buy it and you derive some form of passion from it and, and enjoyment, um, then yeah, you gotta look past that. How's the competition among the arcade companies? So I'm competing with sort of old school coin operators that have been in the business for 30, 40, 50 years selling jukeboxes, pool tables, and, and arcade games to bars and venues and, and then other guys that are doing event rentals where they've got 
50, 100, 200 machines of different types of games. They have a lot more diversity and um, supply. So I compete on a specialty level. I've got very niche games. I, I offer um, training services and tournaments, and those guys and, and gals won't actually have the ability to have that one-to-one touch. And so in the sense that if you call them up, they're, yeah, they might be able to get you a better price. They might um, be able to, to be more flexible because they have more sort of logistical infrastructure. Mm-hmm. But they're not talking to a national champion. They're not talking to someone that's passionate about this game specifically. And they don't have sort of the accoutrement that go with it, like the skee-ball posters and, and the sort of the, the minor touches that, that make it a, a more enjoyable experience. And so... It is pretty stiff competition. I've had people come to me and say, sorry, I'm not going to go with you. I got a better deal from someone else. Or they were able to get me other games as well as a sort of bonus package. And so that's why my expansion, the expansion plan has always been to go to other games, Mm -hmm. but grow the skee-ball business through a variety of means. Now, do you communicate with the other vendors that say, I mean, how about if somebody comes to you thinking you might have another machine that you don't have, do you try to persuade them to, hey, maybe you haven't thought about the ski ball or will you point them in the direction of where they can find what they were asking for? Yeah, typically I want to be consultative in my selling. Um, if they want a certain type of game and I don't have it, I'll tell them to go somewhere else. And and when I tell them that, I think that does two things. It says, one, it's transparent and it's not wasting their time. And two, um, when they want to do ski ball next time, they'll come back to me because they're like, oh, mm-hmm. the guy was nice. He, you know, he put me in the pointed me in the right direction and and that's how I run my business because I don't think that hiding the availability will help what my vision is which is spreading the fun I just want to spread fun I'm in the business of selling fun and that's how I view it and so if I can sell someone fun or refer someone to fun then I've been successful in sort of what my vision is and so I am inching into their territory with the other games but I'm still going to be very complimentary to high-end tournament design and and building these leagues, which are not things that they're interested in um, because they're more interested in just moving product. And to be honest, a lot of these companies are 20, 30 years in existence, and so Mm -hmm. they're going to start to see some turnover, and I'm going to position myself to take on some of their new clients, some of their old clients that want a new, fresh feel. And so that's the way I'm positioning myself. Now, if I could go back in time and talk to five-year-old Joey and go, what do you want to be when you grow up? What would you have said back then? About that time, I think I wanted to be a weatherman. Oh, really? Yeah, I wanted to be a meteorologist on camera telling you what the weather was. Um, what was it about that? Was it just being on TV and pointing the stick? And- it was interactive. It was fun. They were kind of fortune tellers. It was something that I idolized because I got to see them doing that on, on my TV. And so... There's not really much more to it. It's just, uh, you know, I, I don't mind being in in front of the camera and, and you know, telling the future, if you will. But it's uh, it was something I was intrigued by. So when did you uh, move from your weatherman dream to, I guess, tech, the tech world? Or was there Marketing some was in, a up and down in between? Oh. Yeah. So I was a print clerk at my dad's architecture firm. 
Um, he told me to not follow in the family business and go into architecture. He calls it architecture. Uh, and so I took that advice and then I got into radio. I was um, a promotions associate at Radio Disney AM 1640 in Portland, Oregon. Uh, and I was throwing parties. I was throwing the events that they would have. They'd go to a, a grocery store and bring in this, we'd bring in the sound system and the prizes and the talent. And we would do a little promotional giveaway and performance for families that would come in that were fans of Radio Disney. And then that got me into sort of the promotional marketing aspect. And I said, all right, well, this is, this is interesting. In order to show off your products, you need to get them in front of customers and you do that in creative ways. And then I got the Microsoft marketing position in college. And then I fell, you know, I found these technology products and then I found um, this one company in particular that enabled me to do something I couldn't do before, which was build this interactive web content. And then I asked them if they were hiring after uh, my graduation that was coming up and they said they were. And then that's how I jumped into tech and I'd never been to San Francisco before. So there's sort of this theme in my career which is kind of take these leaps of faith right it's I'd never been to San Francisco yet I took a full-time job down here I'd never been uh, you know I'd never sort of had an internship before and then I went down to LA and I interned at Toyota's corporate headquarters and it was the best summer of my life and it was so cool and then um, yeah and so then now here I am with something I, I know there's no way I would have told you I would be running a skee-ball arcade business when I grow up. Right. Right? <laughs> so where do you see yourself five years from now? Um, I mean, I'm on a three to five year plan with this business and I want to get it to a million dollars in revenue and be in a couple of cities and, and running sort of thriving um, competitive skee-ball leagues and, and a variety of other alternative sport leagues. And then um, having a, a warehouse with a variety of games and ultimately creating some sort of technological innovation. So one of the ideas I have is um, sort of the connected gaming experience with physical games in, in, a, in a social sort of a social distribution, right? You've seen it with Big Buck Hunter where you can play and have your high score be dis- displayed across um, hundreds of thousands of games. Mm-hmm. And same with Golden Tee where you can play around a golf and shoot your low score and then you can see what other people did on that on that. Um, course on in a different golden tea in albuquerque new mexico or tallahassee florida wherever it is and so i think there's innovation to be made around um, the games that i'm interacting with and the way that they can communicate and then also the going back to the roots of the the games themselves these are redemption arcade games so people want something for the what they put in um, they put in a coin or a dollar or a token, and then they want to get something out of it. And so I have some ideas around creating more value from that experience, whether it's posting scores to Facebook or merging a photo mm-hmm. a photo booth concept into the game where when you roll a 100-point pocket, it does something. So what's your average uh, age of your clients? So for the rental clients, it's, you know, 30 to, to 40 event planner, office managers, um, typically female, and then at events it's twenty-five to thirty-five. Skews a little more male for um, just because it's more of a competitive experience, but it's still pretty even male-female ratio, which is great. 
And I think that there's not many games that lend themselves to that. I know bubble hockey is 90% male. and But skee-ball, anyone can play. I mean, and it doesn't, there's a really low barrier to entry. I think it's fun that you're working, you know, in the arcade business and it's mainly adults. Mm-hmm. You know, and that must be a little day and night to like when you're working at Radio Disney, right? That promotion work, like. But how do you? I mean, do the adults pretty much seem like kids once they're playing skee ball? Yeah, I think the the games themselves are sort of teleportation devices, if you will, wherever you want to go, wherever you want to go back to your nostalgic memories, or if you even want to just let loose in the now and have some sort of competition or stress relief or just you know trying to get that high score wherever that takes you and the reason it's mostly adults I mean I do have a uh, a location down the street that is a food truck park which is mm-hmm. open to the public and it is family friendly and so to be honest with you um, while the player is very young the money is coming from the parents yeah right so and I, uh, there's a small anecdote. Um, when I set up that ski ball trailer, which has two machines and a canvas canopy next to food trucks, I didn't realize that the people that are going to be playing are the kids, and the real benefit doesn't come from the gameplay. It comes from the parents being able to give their kid 10 bucks and ones and then have them disappear for half an hour so they can eat dinner. And they said, thank you so much, Joey. We've actually been able to eat dinner again (laughs) because our kids, you know, which are normally nagging them or, you know, running around and getting in trouble are then just zoned into the skee-ball machines. One more question. Obviously, fear isn't a paralyzing factor in you making this career jump, but obviously, do you have a little fear of, am I going to be able to pay rent next month or am I going to be able to eat? Are those realities for you? Yeah, so there is a significant amount of fear because um, these games do break, the deals do fall through, um, there are sort of legal ramifications with everything you do, but at the same time, um, the harder you work, the more you make it work, and for me, it's sort of been this hustle mentality, if I can't pay my rent, I'll rent my place out on Airbnb just to get a little bit of mm-hmm. cash. If I can't, um, if the business isn't succeeding, I'm going to figure out why and I'm going to diversify or change my product or adjust accordingly. And I've always been diversifying my products. If my only product was putting ski ball machines in bars, I wouldn't have a product because none of the bars have my ski ball machines right now in my market. Um, that's a harder sell. It, it requires longer term um, relationships and and when we talk about sales terminology, the sales cycle from when you first find out who your prospect is to when you actually have a contract and you're successfully running business together. For bars, it's it's years. I've been connecting with a bar owner for the last three years, uh, ever since I've kind of got into this and. It wasn't until recently that he said, I want to put one of your machines in my bars. This is a great idea. And so and that's going on in Oakland, and we're putting a machine in there. Is there a standard of how that deal works? Because I always wonder whenever you see like a pinball machine or whatnot in a, a bar, do they make anything off of that? Or are they just allowing you to put it in there? Are you, is it like renting a space? How does that operate? So there's 
typically two schools of thought there. There's one where it says, I'm going to put this game in here. It's going to be no skin off your bones. It's just going to be an amenity for your patrons, and I'm going to add a lot of value by having this here. And then the operator takes all the money. Mm-hmm. And the other side is a revenue split where it says, I'm going to put this into your bar. You're going to make money. I'm going to make money. You promote it a little bit. I promote it a little bit. We all make money together. And the industry standard is like a 50-50 split. But one of the big values of my operation is that if you bring in a skee-ball league, if you bring in a competitive gaming league of any sort, then you can find a way to say, I'm going to bring 30 people on your off night. Your off night's now going to have an extra $15 tab per person here that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And so I'm actually making you $500, $750 extra on your off nights because of this amenity that you have now. So not only am I getting more people here, you have a new amenity for your patrons to experience. Um, people are writing about it on Yelp reviews and you have all these different sort of uh, accessory benefits, but let's not worry about the revenue split. We're going to keep that separate. Mm-hmm. Like we're just, I'm just going to take all the revenue out of this and bring money into your bar now elsewhere. How often would you, would you go and check what's in the machine or take the money out? Uh, I try to do it weekly. Can you usually add, like, is there an average that you know, like, it, there's at least going to be this much in there, or is it a mm-hmm. complete roll of dice? Yeah, you can kind of, once you do it a couple of months, you can kind of see what the trends are. And um, if the machines are outside, like some street food, it's really sort of weather dependent mm-hmm. to see what's going on. If, if they're at a different venue, um, just knowing what the busy nights are at that venue and if, they're, if they are doing well, if they are getting a lot of traffic. That really will affect it. And then are the machines working? Are people having problems? Is it a one ball short? You know, all those things that can kind of lead to, or is the staff forgetting to plug it in? Or is it, or did it get unplugged? Those kind so of things. So do you make drop eyes a lot? Because can you rely on people calling you to say, hey, it's not working? Or, I mean, have you showed up somewhere and you realize your machine has not been in operation for a couple weeks? Yeah, yeah. I, uh that keeps me up at night. Um, so I have some security cameras on some of my machines. Okay. And so when the machine gets unplugged, um, the security camera says that it's off. Or if it's on a different line, I can tell because the lights go off. And so uh, those types of things will notify me of that. Um, because if it's in, a, in the wild, if you will, it is hard to rely on someone who's operating the venue to say, to have their... Um, sort of goals and, and interests align with mm-hmm. is this machine making you know 50 cents or a dollar a game right now like they don't care they're like is are my food trucks or yeah. is someone not stealing my you know clothing from my retail shop whatever it is other things that they can be worried about but um, that leads back to the relationship that you have with your clients if you have a strong relationship you know they'll shoot you a text they'll give you a call and so um, but typically you put a little sign on there that says, if for any malfunctions or service, please contact this number. Well, I look forward to seeing where this all stands. Let's say three more, three years out from now. Maybe it'll be everywhere and, and that'll, be, that'll be a lot of fun. Definitely. Thank you so much for taking some time on your Monday afternoon. And thank you for also being one block away from my current day job. <laughs> for sure. Pleasure's on mine. <laughs>